for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then could be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything. We followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this privilege and opportunity to stand under your word. We pray, O Lord, that not only would we stand under, but that we would understand. May the fear of you be before our eyes. We confess, O Lord, that we have not always done what is righteous in your eyes, but through the blood of Christ, we come before you now, seeking reproof, admonition, correction, and encouragement in your word. I pray that we would see Christ exalted in today's sermon, and that our hearts would be moved by the Spirit of God. I ask for you, O Holy Spirit, overshadow my mind, my heart, and my lips, to use me as a vessel for your honor. In Christ's name, amen. Who, then, can be saved, is the question Peter and the disciples asked Jesus after his response to the rich young ruler. Who can be saved? That is a question we really need to ask all of ourselves. Who is qualified? Who fits the proper qualifications and description or personality or character as someone who is fit to be saved? Clearly the rich young ruler was not fit to be saved. It would almost appear as if Christ was powerless to save him. And yet at the same time, that is really what is at underscored in this whole text is who has the power to save. It is God who has the power to save and only he has the power to save. No man or woman can save themselves. And it's with that understanding of power that we enter into this. Does God have the power to do all that he wants? Does God have the power to save even the vilest of sinners? Does God have the power to sovereignly decree all that occurs in the universe? I was reading recently about um, Time Magazine. And Time Magazine had a rank, I'm sorry, Forbes Magazine did a ranking between 2009 and 2018, running an issue every year called the most powerful people in the world. And for every 100 million people, there was a slot. They stopped doing it after 2018 and instead ran an issue of the most influential people in the world. But when we think about those who are the most powerful, we think about those who have the most financial resources and those who have the most human resources and therefore are not limited to do whatever they want. Are you interested to hear the list of the last list of 2018? Well, I'll give you the top five. 
The first one is Xi Jinping, who is the president of China. The second was Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, or I should say the prime minister of Russia. The third is, was Donald Trump, the president of the United States. The fourth, Angela Merkel, the president, prime, I'm sorry, prime minister of Germany. And the fifth on the list was Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, but he's no longer CEO. And so with that said, we have the top five most powerful people, the movers and shakers of 2018. Who are they today? Well, you could use your imagination. The bottom line is that power is a very subjective thing. Because when we think of power, we think of who has the ability to do whatever they want without no restriction. And the only person who can do whatever they want ultimately, who supersedes all people, is God. God can do anything he wants. Why? Because he has all the resources. God owns everything. The whole world and the fullness thereof belong to God. Everything is God's. He made it, and because he made it, he owns it. And so everything in creation belongs to God. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. But also, he has vast resources. He has an, a, a whole realm of angelic celestial beings who will do his bidding. And all the world is subject to the decree of his will. He moves upon the heart of man and none can resist his will. He is sovereign over the nations. He is indeed all powerful. He is omnipotent. Do we truly believe this? Or do we put a limit on God? I believe too many of us put a limit on the power of God. We don't think he is able to do all things. And we live our lives in doubt and fear and skepticism because we do not have a big view of God. Let me reiterate, there is nothing that limits him. There is nothing that God cannot do. The only thing he cannot do or is unable to do is to sin. Because if he were to sin, he were to be to violate his own righteous character. God cannot deny himself. And that brings us to our next but God. The context of this passage brings us to the rich young ruler. A young man who was wealthy and prosperous and basically had everything. He, he was a man who had everything that, that life could want to give to someone. But there was one thing he lacked. He lacked assurance that he would go to heaven. He lacked assurance that he knew the way to the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus met this young man, the young man questioned him. He said to him, how can someone enter the kingdom of heaven? Or how can someone inherit eternal life, rather, is the question. What must I do? Or what good deed must I do? And so the young man has a very warped view. He feels that there's that one good deed, that one silver bullet uh, um, action he must take. And that it'll reward him with eternal life. He's seeking a way to heaven. And Jesus will respond to him in dealing with his heart. Because, you see, the man had a wrong view of the gospel. He had a wrong view of heaven. He had a wrong view of justification. And Jesus was going to correct him. He was going to set him straight on the doctrine of salvation. But he was a man who had everything, but he did not have the power to secure eternal life. You know, there are some people in life, 
that have enough money that they can get anything they want, but there are certain limitations to the power to do what they want to do. And that's where the but God comes in. So let's start with our first point, and the question is, who is good enough to make it to heaven? Who is good enough to have, make it to heaven? In verses 16 through 19, um, the man came up to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want you to see how Jesus answers this man. Um, and, 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 and I think it's important to understand what the concept of goodness is. I, I think everyone can make a fair assumption that heaven is good. We know that God is good. Therefore, the assumption is that good people go to heaven. The question is, who meets up to that standard of goodness? And, and how do we measure goodness? Because if you ask people, do you think you're a good person? 99% of the time, people say, oh yeah, I'm a good person. And that's because the standard of measurement they're using is usually biased in their favor. Right? So our understanding of goodness will be determined by the basis or standard or baseline in which we measure against. Right? If someone asks me, Bob... You know, or, or do you think you're um, overweight or do you think that you're thin? And I would say, well, you know, if I, if I watch that show, My 600-Pound Life, I would say, I'm a thin man. That's the standard. I'm going to say that I'm a thin man. But if I look at what a, a healthy weight is for a man my age, I have to be honest and say I'm overweight. My standard is based on the baseline that I look at. Okay, and so with that said, and, and by the way, as an aside, I'm, I'm really working towards being at a healthier weight, so pray for me, praise Jesus. But goodness is something that is based on a standard outside of ourselves. Generally, when you ask someone if they think they're a good person, what, are they, what standard are they basing their goodness on? Well, I'm not like Adolf Hitler, of course I'm a good person. Oh, I'm not like the criminals and thugs in the streets. And, and we go back to that standard. Remember in, 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 in Luke's gospel when we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It was the Pharisee up front in, in the synagogue saying, beating his chest or pounding uh, before God. Oh, I thank you, Lord. I'm not like the tax collector back there. And I'm not like the, the thieves and the murderers. I'm, I thank you that I tithe and I, and I give of myself to you. And, and he was boasting in his self-righteousness. And it was the... It was the tax collector in the back beating his chest rather who said have mercy on me lord i am a sinner the standard of goodness how we compare ourselves will determine our own estimation of our goodness and that is why jesus said to him no one is good but god there is only one who does good there is only one who is good and that is god God is the ultimate standard of goodness. And if we measure ourselves according to God's goodness, every single one of us is bad. Every single one of us falls short. Every single one of us is inferior. 
Psalm 14, 2 through 3 says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. God's estimation is we're all bad. We're all defective. Because sin has utterly corrupted every human being. Now, yes, among sinful humans, there are some who are nicer and better than other human beings. There's no doubt the standard if we look amongst ourselves. But compared to God, we all miss the mark. We're all below the standard. And so therefore, none of us have a right to judge. God is the judge. R.C. Sproul says this, God does not judge us on a grading curve comparing us with our neighbors. He knows who is good and who is not based on what? His own character. And so how do we know the standard of God's goodness? It's laid out for us in the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes right to the law. Jesus said to him, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. This is the standard, right? If you want to have eternal life, then you need to meet God's standard of goodness and perfection. And the commandments lay it out for us. And, and the Lord does not give the whole Ten Commandments, but he focuses more on the second table, on our character in dealing with other people. You see, the Ten Commandments are not merely ten laws that are to govern human society. That is one of the aspects of it. But they reflect the character, the holiness, the righteousness, and the goodness of God. When you look into the law, what you see is who God is. God is holy and righteous, and that law reflects him. You see him in the law because God keeps the law perfectly. He is the law. He is the essence of the law. And so if you would seek to be like God, you must perfectly keep the Ten Commandments. Again, here's the problem. Everyone fails to do that. Now look at the hubris of the rich young ruler. Right? First, he, he hears and he says, well, which ones? What? In other words, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of commands. Which more important? Among, among the Jewish people that day, there was an argument. What are the weightier matters of the law? What are the lesser matters of the law? You see, among the Jews, there was this ongoing debate. They figured with all the 614 laws in the Old Testament, we have to have focus on the ones that really matter. Let's not worry about the, the trivial laws. What are the weightier matters of the law? And, and clearly they had stumbled upon that. They tithed mint and cumin, but they forgot justice and mercy. They were caught up in the minutiae of the law and yet didn't see the essence of the law. And so this young man seeking to justify himself says, well, which law is essentially the ones that I, I should really keep? What are, what are the more important ones? Well, I want you to stop for a minute and look at his response. Jesus says you... You shall not murder. He goes on. But, he, but, but look at what the young man says in verse 20. He said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? I want you to think of the hubris there. All those I have kept. When we do evangelism, we go out and we talk to people about goodness and the law. And we start asking people. Nine, 99% of the time, Anthony could reaffirm this. When you ask people if they kept the commandments... They say, no, I've lied, I've, I've used God's name in vain, I've committed adultery. Again, we're not even looking at the standard of the Sermon on the Mount. Most people are convinced that they have broken the law at some point in the Only someone at the height of arrogance would say, oh, I've kept all the laws my whole life. The man is so blinded by his pride and arrogance, or he is just being 
one to foil Jesus and has a, a sarcastic and, and usurping attitude. But obviously, he is unaware of the depth of the law, and that is the heart. As I said, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explores the real point of the law is not so much outwardly observing the law, but inwardly in the heart. Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. If you say raka and you hate your brother and you call your brother idiot, you're already guilty of hellfire. You've already murdered your brother. And so the standard is not lessened, it's heightened under the new covenant. And with that said, the rich young ruler is very unaware of how morbidly inferior he is to the standard of God's goodness. You see, the rich young ruler had a problem that most people didn't do, and that is he had a higher estimation of his goodness than was true. He didn't realize how bad he was because he was looking to the wrong standard. The first key to inheriting eternal life must be this. You must recognize you are not qualified or worthy of eternal life. That's the key. If you think you deserve heaven, if you think you're worthy of heaven, then you're not going to heaven. If you think you're a good person and self-righteousness fills your heart and mind that you believe that you're a person who God just must let into heaven because you are so good, you need to be there. You are completely blind to the gospel truth that we are all desperately wicked. We are sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. No man can justify himself before God. No human being will stand before God on judgment day and say, I've kept all the laws from my youth. Every one of us will be condemned as guilty. Romans 3.19 says this, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is unable to save you. The law cannot save you. You cannot keep the law. The law is meant to show you that you're a sinner and that you need a savior. Well, the Lord exposes the man's hubris, and that's my second point, the sin that Christ exposes by dealing with the man's heart. He asked Christ the question, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, verse 21, if you would be perfect, Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I want you to think about what's going on here. What's happening is Jesus is directing his gaze at the heart of this rich young ruler. He's saying, I'll tell you what to do. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and come follow me. Now, does that mean that the standard of the gospel is that everybody, when they become a Christian, give up all their positions, quit their jobs, give it all to the poor? Is that, is that what it is to go to heaven? Is that what it takes to be saved? Absolutely not. That, that would be a misunderstanding of what's being taught here. Some of the ancient uh, fathers thought this way and they lived vows of poverty. Some lived on pillars in the wilderness their whole lives thinking that 
somehow they were, they were honoring God. No, what the point here is that Jesus is touching the heart of this man. You see, there were two commandments that he was guilty of breaking. Thou shalt not covet, and thou shalt not have any other God besides me. You see, the man's God was his money and his wealth. He was a greedy man. He was a man who was satisfied with the treasures of this world. They had gripped his heart to the extent that he loved his wealth more than he loved God. Now this would have been very confusing to the Jewish mind because wealth is a symbol of God's blessing under the old covenant. But we're under the new covenant and and the principles and the values of the new covenant are different. God places a value on the true treasure and the true treasure is possessing Christ and the kingdom of God. You see, the man went away sorrowfully. You know why? Because he loved money. Money was an idol for him. And he couldn't give it up. And so his heart was exposed. It was not the answer he wanted or expected. The cost was too high. The demands were too much. And so he walked away. He'd rather enjoy the riches of the world than the riches of heaven. And he was lost. Here's the truth. The rich young ruler represents all of us. Not because all people are rich but because all people have something in this life that holds them back from coming to Christ. It may not be money, it may be something else. But Jesus knows our hearts. He knows that we have idols. He knows what we treasure. He knows what matters to us. And if we wish to be saved and have a relationship with him, he lets us know from the start he's not interested in a polymorous relationship. The Lord is not interested in rivals. He wants all of you, your heart, your mind, and your will. He wants total surrender of ourselves to him. The implication here is not that we sell all that we have and give to the poor, but rather that when we come to Christ, we're willing to give up whatever it is that's holding us back. I'll give you an example. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was... I was 19 years old, and I think around 20, I remember witnessing to a friend of mine, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and I was inviting him to church, and I was inviting him to come to Christ and have faith, and, and, and he listened to me, and he was troubled, because everything I was telling him, you could see he was coming under conviction. He saw he needed Christ, and so he needed forgiveness, and he asked this question to me, do I have to give up drinking? Do I have to give up going out and partying? Do I have to give up smoking cigarettes? Do you see how his mind was thinking? He was thinking, do I have to give up these things that I like so much to be a Christian? He cared more about that stupidity than he did about having his sins forgiven. His value system was all screwed up. And he didn't come to Christ because he treasured and valued the things of this world more than eternal life. What is more valuable than eternal life? You can't put a price tag on it. This man with all his wealth could not purchase his way into heaven. Wealth will do you no good in the last day. When you stand before God on judgment day, you can't buy God off. You can't bribe him. You come to before God, you will be naked. Just as you enter this world, you will leave this world naked and broke. The only thing that will matter is do you have Christ or do you not have Christ? Are you in Christ or are you in your sin? 
My friends, salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. Salvation is a gift. But if we're going to come to Christ and follow him, it's about sacrifice. The real question Jesus is asking us today, would you be willing to give up whatever it is that holds a hold on your life? What idols do you have in your heart? What, what things in this life do you treasure so much that hold you back? Is it your career? Is it the esteem and respect of others? Is it, well, my family, you know, they won't, they won't accept me if I become a Christian. Is it, is it your possessions? Is it, what, what is it? Is it your lifestyle? Would you be willing to give up everything for Christ? Consider this. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for you. He willingly gave his life. He suffered and died for you. He didn't have to do it, but he did it because of his great love. Is there any sacrifice he would ask of us that would be too much? Daniel Doriani says this in his commentary, by dying on the cross for us, Jesus obtained the right to ask us to sacrifice for him. His life is a pattern for ours. A student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. And since he sacrifices his all for us, he has a double right to ask us to sacrifice. Not only are we his bought with a price, but furthermore, he asks nothing of us that he hasn't already done for us. You see, money was a barrier from this man coming to God. What is your barrier? What is it that you can't let go of in your life that's holding you back? What is it? What idol has gripped your heart? Maybe it's a grudge. Maybe you bear a grudge with someone who hurt you. Like I said, maybe it's the pleasures of this world that you don't want to give up. The passing moments of sin. Maybe you live a life that you know is morally outside of God's will and you do not want to forfeit it. Will you walk away sorrowfully? Or will you give it up for the Christ? That brings me to my third point. The question then remains, who can be saved? The truth is, none of us will give up our sins for Christ willingly. The truth is, none of us can let go of those idols unless God does something in us. Listen to how the disciples respond. Going back to the 19th chapter. In verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Who can be saved? Now the rich young man was exposed. His heart, the treasures had gripped his heart. And it's, it's one of the pitfalls of wealth. Not everybody can handle wealth. Now God saves wealthy people. We see that in the New Testament. We see in the book of Acts, Barnabas was a wealthy man. He owned a lot of land. He, in all, for all intents and purposes, he was a millionaire. But he was a very generous man. He was a giving man. And he was a son of encouragement. And God used him. Cornelius was a wealthy man. He was a centurion in the Roman Empire. He was a man with a lot of power and a lot of wealth. And God saved him. 
That doesn't mean God can't save people. That's the whole point here. It might seem impossible with God, with man, but with God, but with God, all things are possible. But money had so gripped the rich young ruler's heart that, that it would be greater and easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which we know is physically and anatomically impossible than it is for a rich man to enter heaven because his riches so grip his heart. And the disciples wonder who then could possibly be saved. Who can let go of the things that hold them in their life? Physically speaking and humanly speaking, it's impossible. No one can come to the no one can come to Christ unless he is drawn by God. There must be an effectual calling. There must be an awakening. There must be a rebirth in the heart, a renewal, a regeneration. God has to take the stony heart of sin and give you a fleshly heart that is sensitive to the things of God. Unless God frees you from sin, you cannot free yourself. And that brings me to this, but God. We look at this, and does this say that, mean that rich people cannot be saved? As I just said, no. But God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. It doesn't matter if you, if it's a matter of wealth or it's a matter of some other thing holding you back. The reality is, but God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Therefore, it means that no matter how hardened and no matter how vile a sinner is, but God could save him. It means that a loved one who you are close to, no matter how far gone they are, no matter how depraved they are, you may have lost hope. You may say, I'm not even praying for this person no more because they're gone. But God is able to save that person. It doesn't matter how far gone you think you are. You may think you've sinned so bad that you are unworthy of salvation. But God is able to save you. Don't give up hope. Do not limit the power of God. God is the most powerful being in the universe. He made the universe. With God all things are possible. There is nothing that could limit. There is nothing impossible for him. Just look at what scripture says. Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Isaiah 43.13 Henceforth I am he and there is none who could deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? Job 42.2, Job declares at the end of his trial, I know that you, Lord, can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Do you believe that God is all-powerful? Do you believe that God could save any sinner to the uttermost? Do you believe that any sin could be forgiven? Do you believe that God could forgive you? Unfortunately, there are many who say they believe in God, but they doubt His power. They doubt in the power of God in their own lives. They doubt in the lives of others. Let me tell you this. Never, ever doubt in God. You may doubt in yourself. You can doubt in others. But do never, ever doubt in God. Whenever you doubt in God's power, you make Him a liar. Think about Abraham. Look at what happened in Genesis 18, 10 through 14, when God came to visit Abraham and 
and Sarah to reveal that she would have a son the following year. Genesis 18.10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, and now Abraham and Sarah are old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed be a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Now let me just bring you into context. Abraham is about 100 years old and Sarah is about 90 years old. If someone told Pastor Paul that he was going to have a child at his age, he would laugh just like he's laughing now. It's, it's something to laugh about. That's crazy. All the years went by, God... God made a promise to Abraham that he would give him a son. He tried his own way. He went with Hagar because he was impatient. And then he thought, maybe Eleazar will be my, my heir. God, you know, said, no, no, no. I will have a son for you. I will have a son for you. And that's exactly what happened. He raised up a son for Abraham. Listen to Romans 4.19. It says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, and he was justified. Are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he says he's going to do? God is not limited by anything. It is our doubt that limits the power of God being unleashed in our lives. We limit ourselves by our sin because we want to hold on to those things we treasure, those paltry pleasures of sin we want to hold on to instead of letting go and holding on to Christ. We walk around sorrowfully like the rich young ruler day after day because we are content to enjoy the passing, fleeting pleasures of sin than to have the eternal treasures of Christ. Oh, my brothers and sisters, please be mindful that Christ is better than all. Be mindful that whatever it is that's holding you back whether you're someone who's wavered in faith, you're not sure if you're ready to make the jump, or maybe you are someone who's come to make a confession, you've come to believe in Christ, but, but, but you've never really surrendered, you've never really fully given yourself to the Lord, because something's always holding you back. Let go. Put your full confidence in God's power. Put your full confidence that He is the greatest treasure in this life. Let go of it all. Surrender to Christ. And have the hope of eternal life. I want to conclude by saying this. No sinner can come to Christ on their own. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Why? Because God does something man cannot do. 
He opens our blind eyes. He softens our heart and hearts. He quickens us with his Holy Spirit and raises us to life. He is the God of the living, not the dead. And he raises us to life. If you are wrestling today with doubt, if you're wrestling today with skepticism, if you're holding on or there's sins holding on to you, holding you back from truly experiencing the power of God unleashed in your life, I urge you today, repent and believe in Christ. Be like the people in Mark chapter 9 when they saw his son was demonized they, and they, the apostles couldn't heal him. They came to Christ, Mark 9, 22, and said, if you could do anything, have compassion, help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, they were asking Jesus, if you can, please heal my son. If you can, Jesus answers, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father responded, I believe. Help my unbelief. And there are many here today, I believe, in the same place. We believe, but unbelief dogs us every now and then. Unbelief challenges us every now and then. And so we come to the Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. May God use his word to encourage you today. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today. We know that the power of your word can do all things. We pray, Father God, that you would accomplish your will according to your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.